The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. Premium subscribers received a short highlight clip containing the most actionable parts of the episode you are about to hear. This seven or eight minute episode was released to them shortly after it was actually recorded. This is one of the many benefits you get as a premium subscriber. Another is, of course, that you don't have to deal with any of these annoying ads or announcements. And also, you get the Daily Contrarian Briefing and Podcast. That is released every market day morning by 7 a.m. So sign up. You can do so at the website mentioned at the top, contrarian.supercast.com, or through our substack, contrarianpod.substack.com. If you are already on Substack and have the app installed on your phone, it probably makes the most sense to go that route, but prices are exactly the same and benefits are identical at both websites. So sign up and I'll see you there. Now on to this week's episode. Here you go. Jordy Visser of Weiss Multi-Strategy Advisors, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast today. Great to have you on the show. Pleasure to and- meet you, Nathaniel. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. And we have your views here, which are, dare I say, optimistic, which is these days enough of a contrarian thing to kind of focus in on. So you actually think the environment is constructive for asset prices and not just for asset prices, but for risk assets like stocks. Is that fair? That is fair. So tell me about that. Let's start with the first thing that you said, and I know this is the contrarian podcast. Um, 
you're 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 dealing with a scenario that when you when it's contrarian to be positive, think about the fact that I don't know stocks are up eighty percent of the years and um, a, a, a fairly high number of the quarters. So when you're starting from a perspective that most people are negative, uh, to me that's always an opportunity to look at more closely at what's happening. And the way that I equate it is when people get this bearish, it's kind of like people start talking about who's going to win a football game without looking at the spread. A lot of the stuff that people are negative about has been going on for some time. Uh, the S&P 500, as of when we got on here today, is unchanged since February of 2021. Wow. The NASDAQ, the NDX, is unchanged, believe it or not, for over two years now, August of 20. Wow. So a lot of the things that people are worried about, in my opinion, are already discounted in the market. And last year, my focus was completely on inflation, really, for the last two years. And now I think inflation, which has been a driving factor behind most of the, the weakness in assets and the movement in the central bank, has left us in a position where not only are allocators extremely negative, but something else I use for a lot of my decision making since we manage a hedge fund here is what's happening with hedge fund leverage and hedge fund leverage is down in very, very low levels. So you have allocators, underweight stocks, and you have hedge funds with very low leverage. And that just sets up a situation where, you know, uh, someone's favored by 17 points. And I kind of like the underdog here. Interesting. Yeah. So basically we've been range bound then for a couple of years, at least in tech stocks. I didn't realize that it was that, that dire. But but the, like you said, a sentiment is bad and the Fed is still tightening. Do you think that needs to change for the market to shift or not? I don't think the tightening needs to to change. I, I agree with where the market is priced right now, um, where the tightening will continue into next year. But inflation um, is coming down. And I think, you know, everyone kind of sees now that inflation is peaking. So the only real debate with inflation peaking is where it plateaus. And most of the things that I look at and spend time on, they're pointed sharply downward. And M2 in particular is only up 1% for the year. Weekly deposits, which make up 85% of M2 and is a more timely indicator. Uh, we just had a big negative print last Friday. So money supply is being drained from the system. So inflation should come down. The Fed should keep tightening because nominal GDP in the most recent quarter was still up near 9%. Top line revenue for companies was double digits year over year. So the economy is still fine. Inflation has peaked. And the real debate, I think, for people is how um, long or how far down inflation is going to go. And I just think it's going to come down much sharper than what most people think. Interesting. Yeah. So that's that's another contrarian thing, because people seem to think that it's going to be, you know, setting Ben Bernanke and everything, that it's just going to it's going to stay high for a level. Do you have any forecasts on inflation for the next year? Well, let, let's, I mean, if I just use where the fixings are um, as of today for headline year-over-year -year CPI um, and just use the market estimates, I mean, the market has it down at, you know, sub 4% by May of next year. Mm. The Fed funds rate is expected to be over 4% by May of next year, which means right now where the market is priced in terms of where they expect headline CPI to be year-over-year -year, uh, in, in May, we'll already have what could be deemed somewhat restrictive monetary policy. It doesn't get to the Fed's target. But if you're going from over 9% headline year-over-year -year CPI down to sub-4%, all within a year, that's a pretty good move lower. Um, I, I think 
if you use that just as a gauge, it can be more optimistic. But the reality is the last two months of headline CPI came in at 0.1% and zero, mm. so, or minus 0.1 and zero. So what we have basically is if you get 0.4 the rest of the year, the annualized six-month um, CPI will be sub-3%. So I think no matter how you look at it, it's coming down probably sharper. So I'm going to go with where the market is right now and basically say that you know a year from now, headline CPI will be somewhere around 4%. Mm. Now, the most important component of that is, is gas prices or oil prices. And that's one of the things that has changed for me really since May, June, where I really thought by June of this year, oil would be well above 150. This was before the mm. invasion of Ukraine. But we've had a few changes uh, structurally around the globe that I don't think are going to unwind quickly that have had an impact on the way oil and gas at the pump have actually gone. And most people still believe oil is going sharply higher. So if oil doesn't go sharply higher, I think you could actually see you know, a, a fairly easy sub 4% year over year CPI by the time we get a year from now. Hmm. All right. That's, con- that's, that's constructive. Now, the you know, you are multi-strategy, but it sounds like this in this environment where inflation is is coming in a bit, and eventually the Fed is too, it might make a more more conducive for bonds than stocks. But you you prefer stocks. Well, investment grade yields are now above five uh, percent, and yeah. I actually just tweeted something out today that showed the earnings yield on the S and P. And remember, the earnings yield on the S and P because the PEs are under under 20 now, we're dealing with an earnings yield off this year's earnings somewhere around 5.8%, depending on on where you have the end of year uh, earnings and investment grade yields are around 5.2%. So right now stocks are giving you 60 basis points more before dividends and before buybacks, which is what I kind of compare uh, back to IG yields. Now, it's been a long time since uh, IG yields were above S&P earnings yield, you have to go back to 2002. There were a couple periods during the great financial crisis where they got in, but really since 2002, you've had stocks look more attractive than uh, than bonds. The issue comes in is if you think inflation is going to stay a, a little bit higher, but come down a little bit, uh, I think at that point, bonds might outperform for, for a short period of time, but because stocks have already had a significant fall, and I, I talked to you about where the S&P has been since Feb of 21. If you take it since uh, 2019, the S&P has only been up about 8.5% uh, annualized during the period from the end of 2019. So, And we printed so much money that I, I think we've taken the air out of most of these bubbles. And I think bonds have suffered a lot. But I'll take the fact that stocks will outperform in a slightly higher inflation world. Fair enough. And you have some specific sectors that you're a little more bullish on. You you always like innovation. Talk to me about that and some of the some of the forces that are going on the way you see things. Yeah, and and to kind of segue into that, I I, I want to make sure um, you know we've been in when we when we talk about a recession um, or something big. I think we've been in an investor recession. Um, the way that I kind of think of recessions is you have to have job losses mm. and we have a labor problem. So a lot of the innovations that I'm focused on have to do with a labor shortage. It's not just in the U.S., it's global. And the primary driving force behind it is structural, which is demographics. Um, mm. it, it, the bulk of the world is getting older. We're nearing the peak in the labor force globally because more people are basically turning 60 than being born. And so you're not replacing the people, uh, particularly in the developed markets that you had. So most of the innovations are focused for me on uh, the labor situation. But 
to deal with the labor problem, we have to remember that we were in a three-year period where we had COVID for two years. We've only really, I'd, I'd say, come out of COVID and from a business perspective in September. And then this year was about the tightening and the inflation side. So when you add $6.5 trillion into the system, as we did with M2 growing $6.5 trillion, and so far, we've spent about 3.5, 3.6 trillion through the last quarter in nominal GDP. You're left with a situation at this point that with inflation coming down, most of the driving factors like the bottlenecks, the things that were related to the pandemic are gone. The money supply is now declining and people are a lot more scared. So you're not going to see the excess spending of people coming out. That's the primary driver for inflation come down. But we're still going to have a labor shortage coming out of this. And I don't see a chance that we're not going to have it primarily because it's getting harder and harder to find teachers as they retire. It's getting harder and harder to find nurses. It's getting harder and harder to find truck drivers. And demographics are impacting all of these because we're not finding the people to replace them. So on the one side, you have my favorite innovation theme, which is the transition from increasing lifespan, which was really been going on for the last 200 years where we've been able to take the life expectancy up. But in the last couple decades, what hasn't really gone up as much as life expectancy is health expectancy or the ages to where people are healthy, which obviously hurts the labor situation because at 63, if you're no, no longer able to work, but you can live by taking pharmaceuticals that keep you alive, then you can go there, but you're not very productive in the economy. And I think um, one of the things that happened during COVID uh, that has gotten lost is messenger RNA and how quickly we were able to take the sequence genome uh, that that China sent out. And then two days later, we had a vaccine from Moderna that was done. And then it had to go through the process. The fact that that took two days from a company that was not focused on viruses, this will add to uh, the ability for us to basically have software for the body whether it's through CRISPR or messenger RNA technology, which will allow us to increase the healthy side of people going forward. And that'll allow them to work longer in the workforce and that should help. So uh, there, there's two others, but I, I've spoken a lot here with this. The first one and the major one for me is the transition from lifespan to health span. And I think that's going to show up in biotech. Okay. I want to ask you about that a little more, but let's real quick, going back to inflation. Sick of me yet? Become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions. Other benefits as well. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. You don't buy that we need unemployment to increase, employment to come down for there to be any real progress in inflation? No. I, okay. here, here's one of the problems I have, Nathaniel, and then as you, you get to know me on this podcast, I'm really not big on people taking four or five historical data points uh, spread out over 100 years and saying mm -hmm. this needs to happen for this to happen. There is absolutely positively no proof that inflation can't come down without the unemployment rate going up. I mean, I, I, I think people have missed. In fact, I, nobody talks about this, but in 1990, core CPI in the U.S. was 5.2%. It gradually went down over the next decade to 2%. At the same time, 10-year rates were 9% in 1990, and it took the entire time to get them down below 5%. Hmm. They never got below 4.5% over that decade, 
Today's 10-year rate is 3.6%. So when people say this has to happen for this to happen, 1990 to 1999 was a pretty bullish time for U.S. stocks. Right. It was also a time where people didn't worry about inflation or unemployment because we didn't lose any jobs during the period from 1991 on. So I don't. There, there's nothing that says this has to happen. I do think wages are going to stay strong. That's one of the things that feeds into the blockchain, which I think is going to have an impact on the ability for uh, for labor to get back some of the money they've lost over the years from the capital side or from the company side. But that's a different story. Yeah. Let's talk about the biotech one real quick. So CRISPR and, and uh, what was the other one? Messenger RNA on. sequence messaging. Yep. Can you talk to, do you, are you able to talk to us through that in general, in very general terms? Well, let, let's just say that what's going to happen is, um, and this, most people I think had heard at some point nanotechnology. Mm -hmm. So getting down to the molecular level of things is a big part of the next 25 to 50 years. Um, getting down to the molecular level has a lot of ability to do the things that we did with messenger RNA and CRISPR. If you go back and think about the, the human genome project, which was something that went on from the 90s into 2003, which was the first sequencing of a human uh, genome, that allowed us to go down to the molecular level. It's taken us a while, you know, another 10 years since then, starting in 2013, uh, to really get advancements in CRISPR, uh, which allows you to get at the gene level and think of it as editing genes. So controversial for people, but the main thing is you're starting to get to the point where these advancements will help with a lot of uh, a lot of things, particularly cancer, and places where they're hoping to solve more problems. Until you got to the point that you couldn't see what would happen with your DNA, uh, you actually couldn't make the changes. So the advancements that we're going to see uh, from everything that I know, I'm not an, I'm not an expert. I just talk to people that uh, come in and pitch us on on these types of things. You're going to see a similar type exponential move in terms of life expectancy through health in the same way that we saw with when the app store came out and how many people got iPhones and just the exponential move in, in, in software. And you saw what that did to technology stocks. I think we're going to be solving problems in the health, in, on the health side. And it'll probably go faster than we all think, just like the iPhone sped everything up. Mm. But I think certainly over the next decade, when you're looking for innovations and themes, the easiest way to, to, to kind of think about it is when we came out of the great financial crisis, the focus was on software because we had high unemployment, businesses were having trouble making money, there was no nominal GDP. So the advancements were in saving money. It was trying to run your business more efficiently. And now we're at a different stage where for companies, they need more employees, they need people to be there, and the baby boomers are constantly turning 60, uh, 63 every single day, is about 10,000 every day, and so the money and the dollars, which are controlled by the baby boomers, are going towards their health, and that's going to lead to more advancement. So it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a combination, a powerful combination of the technology, which was kind of set up from 2003 with sequencing DNA, and then the dollars that are available because the baby boomers are in high demand for those types of things at this point. Mm. Are there any particular, um, I guess, parts of that companies or ways to play that that we can, that we can talk about, stocks? Well, I, so biotech and all the life sciences side are going to expand. You're going to get more and more companies. And I think one thing about if I was trying to think of, of the most bullish scenario for people, because at the end of the day, what moves stocks, I mean, 
stocks make all-time highs every decade. Um, it's very hard for them not to. Uh, to me, it's just a measurement of the advancement and in innovation. So as long as technology is going up and productivity continues to show up somewhere, we keep getting um, new highs. I think the most important thing is the fact that if you believe in this transition from lifespan to health span, you should be thinking about how bullish it would be that people are going to live longer. If we have a cancer cure, it excites an enormous amount of people because everyone's been impacted by cancer. Most people start to get really scared as they get older because they're getting closer to getting cancer or any kind of diseases. And if you're saying to them, we're going to have cures for it, it means they're going to live longer and there has to be more risk taking. There has to be more money into stocks for retirement because you're extending the retirement side. Mm -hmm. So I would focus on life sciences, anything in the healthcare sector side. I think it'll look a lot like the technology side did for the mm. past decade. That's interesting. But yeah, that will absolutely set up a problem of employment and having too many. Uh, well, actually, I guess you would you would have an, an yeah an an employment problem, like you said at the at the start. And you think that the the Web three can help can help with that the blockchain? Yeah. Right? So. Here's the thing about the blockchain. Um, aside from you know a, a a a world of less centralization, the best way to think about the blockchain and the impact that it'll have on on labor is the elimination of the middleman. And mm -hmm. the easiest scenario to think about is if you're going to have an authenticated transaction every single time, there are so many people involved with any kind of transaction. The easiest one for people to see is if they buy a house, how many people need to get involved before the house closes between the lawyer, the realtor, the insurance people, everything along those lines. And if everything can be done through technology, you eliminate the middleman. And really, that's what has been happening in technology. It wasn't that long ago. And this is the irony of, of kind of people's fears or what they worry about. So right now, people are worried about over the next 10 years, inflation is going to stay higher. I think it was 10 years ago, almost to the day that I spoke on a panel um, and a professor was on talking about how robots were going to replace all people and nobody was going to have jobs. That was a decade ago. Now we're talking about a labor shortage. Mm -hmm. So the reality is we talk about these things and go through it. The blockchain will eliminate the middlemen. Those people will have to go out and get other jobs. If you want to um, take this even further, when I spend my time talking about crypto and the blockchain for people, Capitalism effectively, to some degree, started based on a, a technological innovation in the 11th century, the plow. The plow allowed people to not have to farm their own food, and we could now farm for massive quantities, which means if you had a town with a thousand people and each person, each family had to plow their own food, uh, or had to farm their own food, then nobody can run to the big city and go become a lawyer. And so once you got the prop, the ability for the plow to have one family feed the entire town, then all of those kids could go off and that's where capitalism kind of got its beginning. The first fiat currency occurred in China in the 11th century at the same time. The capitalist system has been going on in some way, and it's always been this, this game of the middlemen filling out this stuff. If you eliminate the middleman job, then what you have is the ability for those people to go out and go get a different job. And that's what will happen is we'll start to get rid of these excess jobs, um, just like an ATM replaced bank tellers. Uh, we need to get a lot of these different things. It can't help in the nursing side. It can't help on the hotel side. There's a bunch of other places where certain jobs can't, can't be fixed, but you certainly will get some benefit from the blockchain, which will show up just from eliminating the middleman. I must say a future where there are no real estate agents is 
<laughs> not to insult anybody who's a real estate agent, but just having gone through that process or a car salesman. Wow. Exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. All right, Jordy Visser, I want to take a short break and come back and ask you some more questions about yourself, about the firm, and finally about some other, some more about your views on markets. But let's first take a quick break. If you are a premium subscriber, don't touch the dial. You do not get the break. We'll be right back. In fact, we already are. And everybody else, if you want to become a premium subscriber, visit the website contrarianpod.substack.com and sign up. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they're recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. By the way, you don't need the .tech suffix to get to that website. .com will do the trick. And we also have a Substack that you can where you can sign up for the same prices, same benefits, same details, contrarianpod.substack.com. So if you already have a Substack account and use it or have the app and use that, that's probably the best way to go. So contrarian.supercast.com or contrarianpod.substack.com. Whole bunch of benefits, including, of course, getting this episode up to a week early without ads or annoying announcements. And you also get the Daily Contrarian briefing and podcast that is released every market day morning at 7 a.m. This is a contrarian take on the events of the day ahead and what is likely to move markets, such as economic data releases, earnings, and other things. It is really good, and that is completely unbiased, of course. So check that out, contrarianpod.substack.com or contrarian.supercast.tech. Now on with the show. Welcome back, everybody. Here with Jordy Visser of White Weiss Multi-Strategy Advisors. I wrote down white, which is the translation of Weiss. But anyway, th this is the segment of the show where uh, we ask our guests to tell us a little bit more about themselves personally and professionally, how they came to investing in the first place and how they came to this station in their career. So take us away, take us back as far as you like and, and yeah, tell us your origin story. All right. Well, I, I grew up in, uh, in New Jersey and, uh, I'm a uh, fan of the Knicks, Jets, Mets, Rangers. So I've had a lot of uh, disappointment in my uh, in my lifetime and have not seen too many championships. So I always like to start there because it kind of sets a framework for a world of disappointment. But uh, I, I'm, I hated school growing up. Um, and I usually say that when I go speak on anything just because I truly could not stay... Um, it was the most boring thing. I still... I, I, I have nightmares when I think about having to go back to school. But... I'm an insatiable learner. I love 
uh, learning new things. I just get bored by bad content and uh, school to me was bad content. And I don't like memorizing things. I like connecting dots. And that's the creativity that came in. So I, I, I finally did um, graduate with good grades from college and I joined Morgan Stanley and uh, was in the coding and risk management and controllers area, um, built some systems right out of school and then left there and started trading uh, in 1994. Uh, I traded emerging markets throughout the 90s, which was a great learning mm. curve just because that was a pretty horrible period from 1994 to 2000. I actually opened the office uh, for the firm in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And I came back to the States in uh, in January of 99, uh, about a week after the devaluation in Brazil. And then I came back and I started trading some some more of the books there. I was always on the equity derivative side, so I was a derivative person. And in this case, I came back to trade the S&P book. And then I left to start my own hedge fund uh, in 2003, a macro fund, and did that for two years and then joined Weiss in 2005 and brought a good portion of my team over here, of which uh, there's still three of us from that hedge fund that are still here in, in various positions. And then I managed a macro portfolio here uh, for about a decade. Uh, and then uh, I transitioned to where I'm now the president of the firm and the CIO. And I spend most of my time, um, uh, you know, managing the PMs. Uh, we've built out a lot of similar technology uh, in terms of behavioral analytics and things uh, that I did at Morgan Stanley in, in, in the early uh, 1990s. Uh, and that's really been the bulk of the career. So a lot of the investor stuff that I spend time on is really thinking about the future. It's trying to find areas that are, um, I don't want to say contrarian, but I, I do try to find areas where I have a different view than most people. Um, most of them usually have to do with this belief that if you if you think about where innovation is going to be, there is a math, uh, whether it's Moore's law, whether it's what I described on CRISPR and messenger RNA, that these things accelerate, they reach a point where they start to accelerate. Um, Crypto is another one where I got very interested finally in 2020, and then 2021 uh, was another big time for, for me focused on it. And most now of the presentations that I give uh, and uh, our podcast, In Search of Green Marbles, I do it on there as well. What we talk about and I spend a lot of time with is just how the blockchain, energy independence, and uh, healthcare is going to impact the way people think in the future and why inflation is just a distraction right now for what hmm. people are thinking about longer-term investments. Hmm, fair enough. And we spoke about um, the life expectancy and full employment and a little bit about the blockchain earlier in the first half, but we didn't talk so much about clean energy and how that all fits in. Tell me about that. Yeah, that that's an interesting um, shift. And you know this, Nathaniel, um, the, the good thing about um, a podcast or I've been doing content now via videos in terms of webinars and writing for well over a decade is that my views are out there. So if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. If I'm right, I'm right. The good thing is um, I get to talk about it. So last year, um, Ed Hyman, who, who's a, an economist at ISI, we just did a fireside chat yesterday. And a year ago, he and I did this, whenever, when the focus was transitory, we were both on the side of, this is not transitory, this is structural, inflation is going to be here. Now, one of the main reasons for me was the fact that I think, I thought that the underinvestment in the energy sector due to ESG was going to have oil basically trend higher until it got to a level that was high enough 
to hurt global demand and to actually force governments to move towards energy independence and that this whole plan for clean energy spread out over 20 years was was not going to work out well and that we were going to see a massive spike in energy prices so that was where i thought last year and at the beginning of the year one of my surprises was that oil by the time we got to june would be 150. so russia invades ukraine and all of a sudden now a lot of stuff has changed um in my opinion we've now capped oil and one of the main reasons is because from a contrarian basis with russia invading ukraine the initial reaction was oh this is going to spike energy that's going to be off the market and really what it seems to be doing is getting europe focused on the fact that they can't depend on energy from russia and it's going to speed up their movement towards clean energy they had been closing nuclear plants they had been focused on a lot of things assuming that they would have the ability of doing fossil fuels at a, at a, at a declining rate in a very uh, slow fashion. And what this did is speed it up. At the same time, the U.S., which at the time was very focused on not doing fracking anymore and going through it, well, energy oil production is going back up, and it's probably gone up faster than I thought it would. And I think this all fits in with the world kind of looking at what was happening. The U.S. was also in the middle of what I thought would be a long-term housing boom. But that assumption is now was that rates were going to stay lower for longer. And instead, the Fed raised rates far more aggressively. They used the, um, their, their jawboning to get mortgage spreads wider. And so now we've taken fixed 30-year uh, fixed rate mortgages up to the highest level in almost 20 years. And so the housing market is now weak. And I don't see any chance without rates coming down sharply, which I don't think is going to happen because Fed funds are moving up uh, and will get up to four and a half. So I don't think you're going to be able to get mortgage rates back down, which means the housing market is no longer going through a structural bull market. You got a lot of people trapped. You got a lot of people that can't afford the house. And what people don't realize is you use a lot more energy when people are living in houses because they've got more space. They're buying more physical stuff. And by shipping that stuff around, it uses more energy. And that feeds into the other thing that changed dramatically to hurt the energy side for this year and force energy independence, which was China and China's zero COVID policy and their inability to get their housing going. I think they're in a period that's going to be very similar to the U.S., where they've lost confidence in the locals in making long-term purchases. And the housing market in the U.S. left people in from 2010 to 2020 was very, very weak. We just never got a pickup, some of it because we had negative equity, but also because of demographics. And in China, you have a demographic issue. So they're having trouble getting their housing market going. Year-over-year -year fixed asset investment um, in real estate is down 5% on the most recent reading. And there's a direct overlay between energy prices and fixed asset investment in real estate in China. So I've become someone now that has gone the other direction. And it's not that I think that oil is going down, but I think the energy independence and move to clean energy was compressed. And that's going to happen faster than what people think. And what that does is that takes the linear move of energy out. The other thing, which I don't think people fully grasp, today's PPI in Germany came out year over year was 45%. The dominant part of that is energy, meaning their power prices have gone through the roof. So when you try to convert where power prices in Germany have gone this year, it almost equates to where I thought oil needed to go in the US. And I was thinking oil prices needed to go to above 500 to do the demand destruction. What's happened in Germany is we saw synthetically about a $500 equivalent in energy prices for their power slash natural gas prices inside the country. So what Russia did is actually speed up the, uh, the move to clean energy and the dollars have been flowing and the governments are doing it. And what that says to me is that oil over the course of the next five years 
will probably stay range bound between 75 and 125. That's kind of my guess. And if that's the case, that has that has another impact on uh, on inflation staying lower. But one thing is certain, it's going to increase the amount of dollars that flow into the clean energy space. And so you want to be focused on those areas because clean energy and biotech have one common thread. When we saw mega cap tech sell off and we saw the technology companies sell off in the US, it also took down all of these small beta companies in sectors purely because they were beta. It is not the same thing for a soft, for a for DoorDash to go down as a biotech company. I don't see those as being similar. And what I see differently is that biotech and clean energy companies will continue to get dollars while these other companies that were being driven by the multiples in the in the private markets, I don't think those are coming back. So I again I'd focus on clean energy uh, and biotech and life science and those types of companies. I think they're gonna do phenomenally well when they break away from what's happened with tech. Hmm. Any particular stocks that you can mention? I, I really, as a macro person, I leave the bottoms up analysis to my PMs. Um, they they can join your show at some point and have a couple. Actually, we had one on, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> cool. Okay, but on, on clean energy, though, what do you make of the argument that you you still need oil to make to produce clean energy to to get the infrastructure in place to do all this stuff? And and you know, every solar panel takes how much lithium and how much cobalt and all these other things. Like, yeah, what do you what do you make of that? I agree. Um, it, this is not a um, the things I mentioned. So the housing market in the U.S. is no longer a bull market, which means we're going to see less goods being shipped around. So world trade is going to come back down to where it was in the prior decade, which was very, very low. At the same time, China's housing situation, completely new thing. And then Russia's in, invasion of Ukraine is going to spend more dollars in the energy side. So there's a difference between building out the energy infrastructure and having advancements in what is needed. So if we go to 2010 again and we talk about why inflation for that decade was low, there's a lot of different reasons. But two of the technologies that had a huge impact on this were obviously the software boom, using the iPhone, using the App Store. But then the other thing was fracking. Mm. Fracking didn't leave as a technology. It, it, I mean, it came out and oil had been 150 before. And then fracking really didn't become something that I think everyone focused on until after 2010 and maybe even as late as 2012. Then you saw oil prices break down. I think what's going to happen is that oil is going to continue to move higher because of what you said, which is there will be more need for fossil fuels. Second thing is we definitely have a supply issue that's out there. So I think it's going to move higher. I just think the, the movements that we've seen, I mean, we had seen sharp moves from the time COVID went through, forget the negative price, but we went from 20 all the way up to 130, 135 during the, the peak this year. I just think we did a lot of the move and now we're going to kind of settle into a range. And if we settle into a range, that's actually very positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned trade coming down. Do you think that there, there's opportunities with that? Like we've had the whole reshoring thing from China, but that's been going on for a while. Do you see that as a secular trend as well? And could that maybe help the employment? Well, I guess if we have full employment, I don't know. Yeah. There's there's no doubt that the reshoring or the onshoring end, I, I don't care if, you know, Blackstone's been making major investments in kind of logistics, you know, localized logistics warehouses. So the whole thing that Amazon brought, we're trying to shrink the amount of distance that trucks need to drive and shrink the amount of distance that ships need to go from China to the U.S. If global trade doesn't grow, that is a major, major thing of oil demand, because you're you're going to see if we grow at zero percent a year and during the decade of 2010 to 2020, global trade remained very, very low. 
if that happens again, and that has already started where we've seen global trade start to, to, to move lower, if you get into that situation again, I just don't see how that doesn't add pressure or put a cap on oil. And those are the types of things that if you're going to play them, from my perspective, you can watch them on, I think the most recent trade numbers came out in June of last year. You're obviously getting freight rates and stuff collapsing at this point. I mean, we had the largest freight rate decline last week since COVID. They've been coming down sharply. I think the last three weeks are down 8%, down 5%, down 5%. And then you saw FedEx kind of confirm that things were weaker when they came out with uh, their news last week that things had fallen off sharply in the last month. I think global trade and this reshoring onshoring is something that we forgot about because when COVID happened, we put so much money into the system. The housing boom was going. Everyone was leaving their office and moving out and doing work from home. Well, if that doesn't happen the same way and we're not shipping things as much across the country, across the waters, which really just started from the tariff war, which happened before COVID, hmm. I think your point's valid. I think this is another reason why people shouldn't be as optimistic on oil. I've heard people... I think you had a guest on recently in, in July who was talking about $200 oil. I, yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, and I've heard people say 300 to 500 in, in private conversations. I just think we're at a situation where that was a, a, a more likely scenario before what happened this year when three tightenings were built in by the end of the year. And now we're talking about four and a half percent by uh, by May of next year. Mm-hmm. All right. Finally, Web 3.0. Um yeah, talk, talk to me about that because that, that that's something we haven't really t- had on this this podcast and, and cryptos in general because the problem is it's such a binary. People either love pr- cryptos or they hate them and yes. they both have valid points and they're both very passionate. And so other than just reinforcing those, but you're somebody who has, you know, comes from much more of a, a traditional financial background, but you like Web 3.0 and blockchain and even cryptos? Yes. So this is um, probably the most interesting macro theme I've ever um, rabbit holed through. Um, Four years ago, uh, I had no, I thought it was, it was in the hype cycle stuff. It was still way too early and the blockchain was a great concept. And I thought once they figured it out and they got the energy efficiency side down, that maybe by 2025 or something, it was going to be time to focus on it. So whenever I hear of a new innovation, let's just say um, we've all been waiting for autonomous vehicles now for the last mm-hmm. five years to be dominating the roads. We've all been waiting for 3D printers. Like you you get a technology, you hear about it, and then you go back and you see that, hey, we're not having 3D printers replace every human. We're not having any of this stuff go on. Well, with the blockchain, an accelerant happened. And just to give you an idea, because people, I get asked this because I've been bullish openly about crypto this year. And so whether it's in Twitter, whether it's anywhere, people love to, like you said, they're binary on crypto. Since 2019, the S&P, as I said, is annualized about 8%. It's up 25%. NASDAQ is up about 35%. Bitcoin is up almost 200%. So with the fall we had in the last few days, let's say it's 175%. So if you bought Bitcoin at the end of 2019, you're up 175%. Ethereum, you're up about 1,000%. And everyone gets focused on it goes up, it goes down. This stuff has been compounding for a long time, just like the S&P 500. And I think the problem is with it, they get caught in this world of, well, it's going down and it's now down 70%. Well, here's the the reality. The total market cap of the crypto world is about a trillion dollars. The total market cap of the TradFi or the fiat system right now, total assets is about $425 trillion dollars. 
So I view the $1 trillion of crypto as basically a new country being formed, a less centralized country. And I say country because Bitcoin is the currency of that country. Um, Ethereum is basically the programming language or the technology of that country. And that country is attracting talent and capital at a very fast pace. And it's attractive in the same way that America was attractive for freedom, for getting away from this. Most big companies in the traditional finance world on the tech side, as far as I'm concerned, any of the platforms will be disrupted by Web 3.0. Web 3.0 is the borderless internet. It allows for the owners and the users, the content creators to own their own content. And right now you're doing a podcast. I don't know how much you're making off the podcast, but I know it's not as much as you think you should be getting off it because everyone that has a podcast, it, if you're doing good content and you're getting viewers you're not or listeners, you're not getting as much as you think. Now, there's the one-offs where people do, but Web 3.0 is going to continue to accelerate because as people learn that Uber can be disrupted with Web 3.0, that Justin Bieber didn't have to sign the contract that he signed initially, like American Idol people did. If they already had a million viewers, why can't they just issue an NFT with their first album for a dollar a piece, take in the million dollars and give royalties through the smart contract to the people who are the, are, are the supporters? That's what made Justin Bieber. Justin Bieber never would have been found except for the listeners and the viewers and the likes that he had, which allowed them to go find him. This is what this is going to do. And by being borderless, it allows people in Brazil, people in Africa, people in Venezuela to actually participate in the global economy. We saw that with Axie Infinity and the movement that it had, uh, I believe in the Philippines, uh, where it created its own little economy and allowed people there to make real dollars. So I think Web 3.0 is the most interesting and most disruptive force that I've seen. It will have an impact on large cap tech. I believe it leads to small cap outperforming large cap because small cap companies will not be disrupted as much. The big targets on this will be the mega cap platforms, which obviously is what has led to the U.S. outperforming the rest of the world. So when I think of Web 3.0 and I think about what's going to happen, I think people should be taking advantage of Bitcoin and Ethereum down here. They should fall. Bitcoin and Ethereum and the crypto world should fall if tech is falling. <laughs> Fiat yeah. assets are falling. And in particular, if the speculative innovation that's out further is falling, well, that's what's happened. They've just outperformed all of that. ARC, which is a popular ETF, mm. during that period from 2019, it's down 14%. So mm. during the entire time of COVID, it's down. And Bitcoin and Ethereum, I gave you the numbers. So if people are going to invest in it, I think it's Bitcoin and Ethereum. That'll make up the majority of the market cap. And I do want to give you one more and just finish it on that. In 2013, when I thought it was a joke that everyone was investing in Bitcoin, there were 66 cryptocurrencies. As of today, there are 20,000 cryptocurrencies. About 10,000 of them are active. And when I spoke at this, I said, what's happened is we've gone from a currency, which was Bitcoin. Then we got in the Ethereum, which exploded the amount of tokens. The tokens, to me, are mainly representative of companies. In the global economy, there are about 50,000 public companies. There are now about 10,000 active cryptocurrencies, most of them representing some form of a company, some business that issues a token, and then the users and the people that believe in it buy the tokens. That's going to expand, and that's why what we're seeing now is the organic growth and expansion of the crypto world in the amount of people that are focused there, I think 
personally, out of all the three that I talked about, lifespan to health span, energy independence, the easiest one, in my opinion, for the common investor to make money on is Web 3.0. And I would just go out and buy crypto and just hold on to it for the next five to 10 years. And if it falls again, as other assets do, um, sell some of those assets and buy buy crypto because they've fallen down and, and the fiat system's fallen. This has fallen down. You're getting an opportunity to make a transition into this other world. Hmm. Interesting. That's a very interesting views there on crypto. Just to, to question you on that just a tiny bit, the, you mentioned that this is a country, et cetera. I mean, the, it's still not really a stable form of exchange, Bitcoin. I mean, if you have something like something that moves 5% a day, that's not even the Argentine, whatever the Argentina currency is now. Like, And if the US dollar moved 5% of the day, the world would basically end. I mean, it wouldn't, but you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah. So so what, what do you... Um, I mean, is that is that going to come in? You think is that that volatility going to become more stable? And what are the actual use cases for this? Um, can you just use fiat for these current these these uh, type blockchain things? Well, here's the thing: as the ecosystem grows, just like a country, think of Bitcoin as the currency for that country. If you want yeah. to enter that country, you have to trans you have to move your money into Bitcoin, and then you can use the Bitcoin to buy the companies of the other shares, which is going to be the other tokens. Mm -hmm. So. To me, no matter what goes on, you're going to have to have you. The founder of our firm recently went in to buy some to buy an NFT. The hardest part for him was to take his fiat money and convert it into a world where he could make the transaction. And that's, that's the right. problem for most people. Yeah, that's right. As time goes on, I don't think that's any different than when people started didn't use Uber. I don't know when you first used Uber, Nathaniel, but it yeah. certainly was when it first came out. And I remember I finally heard people saying, you have to use Uber. It's it's 80% cheaper than a cab in New York. Well, that forced me to do it. What will eventually happen is it'll get easier and easier for people to make the transaction, make the transition from the fiat system into this other system. Mm. It's going to happen. I don't, there's not even a question to me as to how it or if it's going to happen. It's just the speed of it. I thought NFTs last year, when that's what really got me interested in spending the time. When I read more and more about NFTs and I saw more and more TradFi people that I respected tremendously. In fact, if you go look at the Shark Tank people that are in this world now of NFTs, they're heavily involved in it. And they started explaining to me how these use cases will be going off for almost everything that we do in our daily lives. Universities are doing it as proof of your resume. So if you've taken a class at Duke was the first one that did this. You're going to get an NFT to prove that it's authenticated that you did this. So I agree with uh, most people that say, well, it's too volatile. Yes. And that's what keeps most people out. It'll get less volatile. It's hard to have transactions there. Yes, it's not ready. We It was energy inefficient. Well, the merge just happened and that reduces the energy uh, usage by 99.9%. Mm. So if that actually is happening and if these things are going positive, the next time the fiat system goes up. So if I'm right about assets trading higher over the course of the next six to 12 months, if that happens, I think the fiats, the uh, crypto web 3.0 world will go up at a much faster pace than the fiat world as it has over the course of the last five to 10 years. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. Yeah, fair argument. Very good. All right, Jordy Visser, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Investor Podcast today. Very interesting conversation. Maybe in closing, you could just tell our listeners how they can find out more about you on the internet, 
and elsewhere. And I will put those links in the show notes as well for ease of use. Well, first of all, thanks, Nathaniel, for inviting me. I, I do like these conversations and uh, uh, I do I do like uh, uh, listening to the work that you do. So thanks. Um, they can find me on Twitter at, uh, at jvisser underscore Weiss. That's the stuff I kind of tweet out uh, four or five times a day with the charts and the themes that I think are the most important. Um, the website gweiss.com is where all of my content is, the writings. I do videos uh, of charts uh, about twice a month uh, or whenever anything big is going on. And then people can certainly connect with me on LinkedIn as well. Very oh, cool. And the podcast, our yeah, podcast, podcast is In Search of Green Marbles. Um, and it's once a week, about 20 to 25 minutes based on whatever topic uh, is happening in the market that we think is the most important for people to uh, to get some insights into. In Search of Green Marbles, what's the reference there? I guess green marbles are the more, they're rarer. Yeah. Um, so my, uh, for years, I was asked by... Uh, I look at a lot of data. I'm a data analytics freak. I grew up, my father taught me how to handicap horses at a very young age. And so I've always been, horse racing is like the, handicapping is like the original thing of taking a lot of old data and then trying to come up with your own odds on what should go on. So I was doing that at a young age and I always looked at kind of data when you've got a million kind of data points, you want to find the 15 to 20 that are the most important and the visual that i always had was trying to find the green marbles out of a, a group of marbles that have been dropped on the ground so when i approach markets i'm trying to find the ones that either people aren't looking at and i'll just give you an example right now the thing i'm telling our teams here we have 20 portfolio managers the s p 500 has started to fall again as uh two-year rates started to move higher but this time beta is outperforming profitability and Today, the 100-day rate of change on beta over profitability went above zero. That's the second derivative. The last time that we've seen a scenario like this was in 20, and the one before this was May, it was April of 09. Hmm. And the reason I say that is because when the market's going down, people are migrating to quality balance sheets, profitable companies, and they're getting out of beta. Well, beta has been outperforming, and it has been correlated with the S&P all year. So when I find something where the S&P is close to the lows of the year heading into the Fed meeting, but beta is not following what it did in the beginning part of the year, that suggests to me that there's risk-taking happening under the surface. And just like if I was at the racetrack and I did my handicapping and I looked and said, well, I think the odds on the horse should be four to one, but the odds out there are even money, I'm looking for value. But what I also look for is where the late money is coming. And factors to me offer me a, a green marble of kind of the late money or the smart money, because that money to me is related to quants and a lot of the quant strategies, particularly the ones using AI, I think have an edge on seeing where data is going. So I see something right now that's a green marble. I post about it, I talk about it. It may end up being wrong, but again, I'm just in the game of probabilities and trying to find situations where something other than what the favorite is gonna win. And in this case, I think there's a really, really good chance that after we get through the Fed, if everything is as expected, we start to get some of the inflation prints that are on the lower side. I think we already saw what can happen in markets from June to August before Jackson Hole. Now we've gone back down. The factors are telling me that there's a pretty good chance that if we get through this and everything's stable, that you're going to see assets start to trade higher, primarily because positioning and sentiment has really bad odds on the market going down. <laughs> hmm. That is a nice, optimistic way of closing the podcast. Thank you again. It gave us a lot to think about here. And with that, we conclude today. Thanks for listening. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. 
Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.